The white-haired senator stepped out onto the stage. A grey v-neck sweater under his suit, the only sign that he was breathing the bitterly cold air of a key of December. Senator John McCain was in Independent Square in 2013, addressing tens of thousands of pro-European protesters. Ukraine will make Europe better, and Europe will make Ukraine better, McCain told the crowd, to rapturous applause. Later, McCain, long a champion of Ukraine, would express dismay at what he considered to be a poor response from his country to Vladimir Putin's aggression against Ukraine in 2014. Then, the Obama administration denied Ukraine lethal assistance because of concerns about corruption and about getting into a war with Russia. The Trump administration reversed that decision. The Biden administration has gone much, much further. This is pretty much the response McCain would have designed. And it comes with risks. With 45 days to go until the midterm elections, I'm John Prideaux and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, we're looking at the remarkably successful response from Congress and the White House to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The world should see the outrageous acts for what they are, said Joe Biden of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in his speech to the United Nations General Assembly this week. So far, America has led efforts to support Ukraine's fight against the aggressor next door. But with Vladimir Putin calling up more troops and once again threatening to use nuclear weapons, how sustainable is this support in the West? And with the midterm elections poised to change the balance of power in Congress, for how long can Biden continue to rely on backing for his Ukraine policy at home? With me to talk about what I think so far has been a rare bipartisan success in foreign policy and to try and figure out what happens next with America's support for Ukraine are Idris Kaloun and Charlotte Howard. Idris, how are you doing? You wrote about the new lawsuit that Letitia James unsealed, yet another lawsuit targeting Donald Trump. It's kind of hard to keep track of all of them at this point, isn't it? It is hard to keep track of them. I've had to keep a long and growing notebook of all of these cases that are against him. But he's he remains defiant. And I don't think that this latest one, even though the details of it are pretty audacious, some of the things that he was trying to claim, you know, no signs that it'll either stop him or stop his supporters from supporting him. Charlotte, how are you doing? You're dealing with the annual Unger traffic chaos in, in New York. How's that been? It is fine. I mean, it's also very predictable. And you've been doing something much more exciting, right? You just got back from Kiev. Yeah, so regular listeners to the podcast may remember that a couple of weeks ago, I was recording from somewhere really noisy. And I couldn't say at the time for security reasons, but I was on my way to Kiev. And I had a really interesting trip. I mean, getting there is quite a thing in itself. The easiest way to do it is to fly into Poland and then take an overnight train into Ukraine. And I was sharing a compartment with Arkady Ostrowski, our wonderful Russian editor. Arkady went on a very Arkady-ish soliloquy about how when you cross over from Poland into Ukraine, 
though the stretch of territory obviously is small at the border, you're leaving this one zone which is at peace and in the European Union and a member of NATO, you know, the world's most powerful military alliance ever. And then you're crossing into a country that's at war, you know, part of the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War with hundreds of thousands of people mobilized and against a power that has no compunction hitting civilian targets and has made uh, repeated threats to use nuclear weapons. And so, you know, the 100 meters that the train goes from Poland to Ukraine is a small bit of territory, but it makes a huge bit of difference. So the last time Arkady was in a shared train car, he was with Zanny Mittenbetas, our editor-in-chief. It was a very, very different time in the war in the spring when it felt truly like Russia was knocking on Kiev's door. How did it feel in Kiev when you were there? Yes, it's much, much safer now. And Kiev really feels like a pretty normal city. It's a very beautiful city. I hadn't been there before. The things that are not normal, there are a lot of people in military uniforms. There's a curfew in the evening. And then there are sort of ordinary things that are extraordinary. So I checked into the kind of business hotel you might stay in in any you know, medium-sized European city. And the people in the hotel on the front desk are incredibly friendly. And they say, you know, we have a 24-hour room service and your minibar's stocked and the gym is on the first floor and the bomb shelter is on minus two and here's your room key. So things feel very normal and quite strange at the same time. There are quite a few air raid sirens. People have gotten used to them. But to your point, Charlotte, there have been no direct attacks on Kiev for a really long time and it feels pretty safe. So one of the reasons I wanted to go to Kiev was really to try and figure out the answer to a question that's been bugging me for a bit, which is about whether America and the rest of the West can continue the current level of support, both military and economic, to Ukraine, which is so vital to that country's survival. And I thought a really good person to talk to about this would be Jeremy Shapiro. Jeremy is the director of research at the European Council of Foreign Relations, which is a think tank, and he used to work in the Obama administration. We talked about how America's approach to Ukraine has been a foreign policy success so far, and how that contrasts with some of the foreign policy failures of recent decades. There's no doubt that the U.S. government's performance uh, since this war began has been a marked improvement on recent efforts uh, in both war and peacetime. And I think it's a real testament to both the planning capacity of the Biden administration and to the sort of very coherent and cohesive and experienced team that they've assembled. It's worth noting, I think, that in part the success in Ukraine is built out of the failure in Afghanistan. Quite a lot of very senior U.S. officials were quite marked and quite hurt even. In, in term, they felt terrible about what happened in Afghanistan. They're still convinced that they had the right policy, but they accept that their execution was not good. And they were very determined from the beginning of the Ukraine crisis to ensure that nothing like that happened again. It also, of course, really helped that the U.S. government saw this coming. And I think that in some ways, that's the biggest success that as early as October or November, the U.S. government intelligence told them that, that this war was coming. But even more remarkably and unusually, they responded to that in a very energetic and organized fashion. Uh, and they got they, – they did something which when I was in the Obama administration, we never could have done, 
which is they got the news out about that. That would have required, by the way, a presidential level decision to do that. It was very hard to do bureaucratically. They got the news out. They framed the war uh, before it even started as a Russian aggression. And that is a framing which, at least in the West, has persisted to this very day. And we, we don't really sometimes acknowledge what a success that is. But we know that in many other instances, the Russians have been able to muddy the waters. And the policy of supporting Ukraine has involved a lot of money, a lot of weapons. Are you surprised by the amount of sophisticated weaponry the administration has been willing to give Ukraine? I am a bit surprised. Um, I'm not even altogether happy about it in some ways. But I think that there has been a calibration of this throughout. We see the calibration moving. The Biden administration has expressed and, and operated on the idea that they need to be continually increasing and upping the sophistication of weapons. But they've been quite careful to do that in a way which won't be escalatory in their view. They've had a, a bunch of red lines in their minds, some of which I think were correct, some of which weren't. But they have created a policy of calibration that has upset the Ukrainians at times. But it seems to, in retrospect at least, it's, the calibration seems to have been correct. You said just then you're not altogether happy with the degree of sophistication of the weapons and perhaps the amount of weapons. Could you expand on that a bit? Well, I remain very worried about the escalation factor. There is a history in Washington of uh, getting a little bit overwhelmed by success. And uh, you pointed out all of some of the failures of the last 20 or 30 years. Some of those failures, Iraq is a good example, might be called a, a sort of failure of catastrophic success whereby an initial success, an initial demonstration of the strengths of the American military, which this is again, uh, and you know, let's face it, the American military has been the strongest and most effective military in the world for at least the last 30 years. Uh, and they've demonstrated that a few times. But they also haven't won many wars. And the reason is because it's not only military acumen which wins you a war. I think what we can worry about here is that these successes will turn to failures if we get a little bit too carried away with our success. The Ukrainians are bound and determined, and I certainly can understand why, to liberate all of the territory that the Russians have seized, including those, those territories from before February 24th, including Crimea, which is now, in the Russian view, part of Russia. In the Russian constitution even now, right? In the Russian constitution. Um, so that contains a lot of risks. I think the, the United States should be asserting its own view as to what, which of those risks it's willing to take and should be calibrating its uh, weapons deliveries and its assistance to that. And frankly, so far it is. But I would be worried that uh, how far that's going to go. Already in the successes of the last couple of weeks, you see a lot of calls, not from the administration, but from the body politic in Washington and, and in Europe for uh, what essentially sounds almost like a march on Moscow. And uh, it's not quite a march on Moscow, but it has that ring to it. And uh, that, that is quite worrying. Charlotte, for those like Jeremy Shapiro who are worried about escalation here, there was more to concern them this week, right? You had Vladimir Putin announcing this partial mobilization. He repeated his nuclear threat. Do you think those threats that he's making, which are clearly designed to try and you know, intimidate the West and make 
policymakers think twice about supplying further military aid to Ukraine. Do you think that'll work? Or do you think that actually it's a rather desperate bluff that's going to be ignored? Well, I thought it was a pretty remarkable speech that he made because everybody after the advances that Ukraine had made in Kharkiv about two weeks ago had wondered how Russia would respond. And this was the answer. And the answer was a partial military draft with quite expansive language that gives Putin some flexibility to call it more Russians. Also, there was the announcement that there would be elections held in the east of Ukraine. And so to me, the speech kind of felt like a wounded animal and a huge roar that precipitates it. But it happens to be an animal that has lots of nuclear weapons. And so everything I know about this war, I know from Shashank Joshi, who's our defense editor. And he pointed out that Putin has been kind of grumbling for a long time and making these threats for a long time, leaving the option open to nuclear retaliation, even though there have been attacks within Russian territory, and he hasn't responded in that way yet. And so the real question to get back to your query to me, John, is whether the West should take Putin at his word, whether he's bluffing. And, you know, that's a really, really tricky question. I don't think that there was anything in Putin's speech that would suggest or precipitate a dramatic change in strategy by the West that they would somehow back down now that Putin has has given this new elevated range of threats. Idris, do you agree with that? I mean, I was talking to our deputy editor, Ed Carr, this week, and he said that Putin's speech essentially contained no new information. The nuclear threat has always been there. It's still there. And in his view, though the West can't ignore it, I think it can be discounted somewhat at the moment. Yeah, I think from the start, Putin has been rattling the nuclear saber. We do see that the stated aims of the war have changed rather than denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine. He is now trying to turn the war into something of a existential threat towards Russia itself. And, and that's an implicit recognition of how poorly the war has gone. The sort of sham referendums that he's trying to stage would not only enable him to say that he's now defending Russian territory, it would also allow him to deploy troops um, that he's mobilized to those regions of Russia, or what he calls Russia, rather than have to do a draft, which would require him to admit that what he's doing is, in fact, a war, which is, you know, the the warped propaganda world of, of Russian media still doesn't acknowledge that. I think we can break apart a few different elements, though, of his speech, right? So the nuclear saber rattling, I think one can discount in some ways, as you two have suggested, but it is still notable, right? I mean, you don't want to completely dismiss it. I think much more important for public perception and public support of Putin and public support of this war is the partial draft that he announced. I think that is pretty important. In recent days, you've seen more Russians take to the streets to protest against the war, which, of course, precipitates arrest. So I think there are elements of the speech that really are kind of a big deal and do mark a different stage of the war going forward. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, from what I've read about Russian public opinion, which is really hard to measure, right? Because how do you poll in an autocracy? But from the best numbers I've seen, about 20% of Russians are really excited about this war, really pro-war. About 20% are anti-war. And 60%, the majority, just really want to look away and would rather it wasn't going on, but you know, don't want to get involved too much. A partial mobilization makes their position kind of untenable. 
Idris, you spent a bit of time talking about Vladimir Putin's televised address. What did you make of Joe Biden's speech to the UN General Assembly? Biden's speech, which came after Putin's speech, didn't really show that uh, he had been cowed at all. He said that, you know, Putin's comments showed a reckless disregard for nonproliferation. Biden said that uh, Putin's aim was to extinguish Ukraine's right to exist and that anyone anywhere in the world ought to have their blood run cold at that prospect. So he really didn't pull his punches. The West doesn't really take uh, Putin's nuclear threats that seriously. I think at the beginning, there was a hesitancy in terms of, of what the West was willing to do. We've seen that they're willing to do more, you know, give bigger and more effective uh, arms to the Ukrainians as they basically see uh, these threats as empty. So I don't think that the uh, American calculus has changed all that much. OK, we'll go back to a time when America got creative about supporting an ally in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a finer time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. And thank you if you do. Charlotte, what have you particularly enjoyed from the past week's coverage? Our cover package this week is about the way that energy markets are being restructured and the enormous boom that's happening in the Middle East as the result of the conflict that we're describing in this week's podcast. So I think it's definitely worth a read to understand the knock-on effects in that part of the world. And Idris, how about you? Our excellent colleague, Elliot Morris, who many of you know, is doing a running series called Midterm Maths, with an S, on basically the statistics behind what's going to happen in the elections to come. And uh, the first two have been really good, and I'm looking forward to all the future ones. That's a great series. I think next week he's going to be looking at swing voters and who they are. The thing that I most want to recommend is something that listeners can't actually listen to yet, but you can go and find the feed on your podcast app. The Economist has made an eight-part podcast series about Xi Jinping, and that launches next week. And it's really, really good. I've listened to it already. So please bookmark that and look for it when it drops. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe to The Economist. You can also find that in the notes for this episode. My friends, this is not a fireside chat on war. It is a talk on national security. President Franklin Roosevelt wanted to talk to the nation about the war in Europe. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. But we well know that we cannot escape danger or the fear of danger by crawling into bed and pulling the covers over our heads. By late December 1940, Hitler had won victories across Europe, leaving Great Britain as the last European ally standing. FDR wanted to help, but he was hamstrung. That's another war and not for me. This time America should keep out and I know I will. I think that this country should heed the advice of its first president and avoid all foreign entanglement. And all our efforts should be made to keep out of the fight. The trenches of World War I and the hardships of the Great Depression had left the American public and many of its politicians reluctant to intervene in another war an ocean away. As the threat from Nazi Germany grew between 1935 and 1937, Congress passed three neutrality acts. These made it illegal for America to sell or transport weapons or loan money to countries at war. It seemed like the isolationists had won. 
but FDR wanted to help. After Germany invaded Poland, he won some concessions from Congress with the 1939 Neutrality Act. It allowed cash and carry. Allies could have American war supplies as long as they paid for them and transported the goods back over the Atlantic themselves. It worked, for a bit. In its million-dollar Georgian embassy on Massachusetts Avenue, Great Britain has installed one of its ablest diplomats, the immensely popular Lord Lothian. But then, in November 1940, the British ambassador, Lord Lothian, flew to New York and convened a last-minute press conference. Next year is going to be a long, hard year. The war isn't won yet. But during that year, we shall be grateful for and welcome any help that you can send us. In front of a tangle of newspaper men and microphones, he had a blunt message. And what we want most are aeroplanes, munitions, ships, and perhaps a little finance. Britain would soon be unable to buy any more war supplies. The president had a problem. He couldn't abandon Britain to face Nazi Germany alone, but he had to work with a largely isolationist Congress. I make the direct statement to the American people that there is far less chance of the United States getting into war if we do all we can now to support the nations defending themselves against attack by the Axis than if we acquiesce in their defeat. It was the answer to this problem that he explained to the nation in December 1940. Under the Lend-Lease Act, America would lend war supplies to Great Britain and defer payment. FDR could later decide what form that payment would take. Many in Congress were still wary, worried that this stretched the limits of neutrality and gave the president too much power. But after some wrangling, it passed in March 1941. Food, tanks and munitions began flowing across the Atlantic. But America technically remained neutral. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. By the end of the war, America had used the Lend-Lease Act to supply nearly $700 billion of goods in current money to more than 30 allies, including China and the Soviet Union. Today we see an echo of that chamber in history as a murderous tyrant seeks to conquer its neighbor and dismantle its democracy. And this moment demands we summon our commitment response, a commitment to respond. Nancy Pelosi's father was a member of the House that passed the Lend-Lease Act in 1941. And she was Speaker when a Lend-Lease Act was next passed, in April this year. This time, it was to support a country taking on Russia, Ukraine. Idris, I was trying to find a historical analogy for America's support for Ukraine at the moment. And you have to go a bit further back than recent history to find it. I mean... America's recent foreign policy, you know, big foreign policy interventions have tended to involve sending troops, whether that be to Iraq or Afghanistan or you know, Iraq again or further back, Vietnam. And this is a different kind of intervention, right? There are no American troops. But there is a lot of help in terms of intelligence and an enormous amount of help in terms of kit that has been sent over with the Ukrainians getting you know, more and more sophisticated weapons as this war has gone on. This seems to me to be a much better way for America to deploy its military power 
And you have to really go back to Lendley's to find an analogy. Well, I guess you could go to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which, you know, America funded against the Soviet Union that was occupying a smaller, less militarily advanced country. And to great effect, um, the, the Soviets lost that war pretty decisively. The fallout of that in terms of what it did for Afghanistan, but also Pakistan, I think, you know, colors that success a bit. But I don't think that Ukraine is necessarily going to fall down that route. One of the problems with historical analogy is that you end up comparing extremely disparate things. Can I ask you, John, what your experience was in Ukraine when you went? What was the perception within the country of those you interviewed of the West support? Well, I think people are really mindful of the support from the US in particular and also Britain and other allies. I mean, there's a real sense in Kiev now, it feels like the headquarters of a Western alliance. I mean, obviously, when you talk to policymakers there, they say, yes, we're really grateful for the help, but we need it faster and we need more. And the White House, I think, quite rightly points out that actually a lot has been sent. There are some logistical delays uh, with deliveries of weapons. You know, you're talking about a very, very large, complicated operation to get stuff out of Pentagon warehouses across the Atlantic and then into a war zone. But nevertheless, it's been impressive. And then I guess when you're talking to sort of more ordinary people, I mean, one of the people I sat next to at this conference, I was at the Yalta European Security Forum, was a Ukrainian soldier who was in military uniform and was sitting there with an injured foot. And it was interesting, while people were talking, these various kind of bigwigs, he was scrolling through his phone. He had a whole load of WhatsApp groups with his fellow soldiers where they were sharing little videos and images of them using these weapons that have been supplied by the West. And I was there at a time when the Ukrainian military made these huge advances. And a lot of people think that that was at least partly due to HIMARS, which is the highly accurate rocket system that's launched from the back of a mobile truck and various other weapons that America has has provided. So I think people are really, really conscious of the support. And I think most importantly, in terms of American policy, they've shown that they can use this kit very, very effectively in a way that makes a big difference on the battlefield. And that, I think, is likely to lead to further deliveries of military hardware. Yeah, One of the things for me watching the war from this side of the Atlantic that has felt so notable is that for the past decade or so, a bit longer, there's been this enormous proliferation in economic sanctions broadly against countries with which America is not aligned. And in this instance, the sanctions have had some effect, but they haven't had a fast crippling effect because though America doesn't buy Russian oil, Russia continues to send its energy, whether it's oil or gas, around the world. It's benefited enormously from high prices. And though there are restrictions on things like chips, there have been travel bans, there have been asset freezes, you know, these all have a slow effect. It's it's kind of a slow strangling rather than a quick death blow. And so what instead has been remarkable is the coupling of sanctions with the hard power and how effective the latter has been. And it continues. I mean, it's just been an enormous amount of money. So if you look at pure military aid for Ukraine, not broader economic aid, it's been more than $15 billion. So the efficacy of that hard power is hard to ignore. 
Yeah, it can be hard to keep these numbers in proportion, can't it? I mean, America's assistance to Ukraine has been huge, around 50 billion, I think, if you total the military aid and the economic aid. That is a lot of money. But, you know, for context, Lend-Lease was about $700 billion. And $700 billion is also about the amount of the Pentagon's annual budget. So we're, we're talking a lot of money, but I think this is a kind of assistance that's affordable for America, which makes a huge difference, and for which there is you know, a significant amount of popular support in America as well, which is great. And I think in contrast to when FDR was trying to assist Britain, although isolationism has grown in America as a result of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, it's nowhere near the levels that we were seeing post-World War One that FDR had to manage. So there still remains a fairly good bipartisan consensus on the need for Ukraine to be supplied and for it ultimately to win. Both both parties are fairly fairly clear about that. Zelensky is one of the few figures in the world, maybe alongside the Pope, who could probably draw a standing ovation from both parties. Mm. Well, that's a really good place to pause because I think one of the considerations when we're trying to figure out how long America can maintain this level of support is what will happen in the midterms in November and what will happen when the new Congress takes its seats in January. So we'll be back in a moment to try and figure that out. Daniel Pletka is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank in Washington. I asked her whether Joe Biden can offer Ukraine financial support without the backing of Congress, if necessary. No, he doesn't have unlimited authority, but he has substantial authority. He also received uh, an appropriation in May for a $40 billion Ukraine aid package, and that itself is continuing to be spent out. So some of the increments that people see are actually part of that congressional authorization. And I know that the White House has signaled that they hope to get yet another appropriation from Congress towards the end of the year. Let's hope that he does get that appropriation and the aid goes to Ukraine. But let's imagine for a moment that he doesn't. I mean, does he have the ability to shuffle around money from elsewhere in the federal government, you know, say in the Department of Defense budget or, or anywhere else? Or is his power to do what he likes pretty circumscribed? It's very hard to say whether or not the president has sort of this unlimited authority. There's a lot of fiddling that can be done. You know, in in the old days, you had fiddling for millions. Now you can really fiddle for billions. You can do what's called uh, reprogramming. You can do what's called um, uh, drawdown uh, of, of U.S. military supplies. We've done a lot of that. And the president has specified authorities. He also has for other kinds of economic assistance, what's called IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. And that, again, affords him within limits some ability to provide support to Ukraine, but also to to others. The problem with this White House is not, however, that they don't have uh, that they don't have sufficient authority. The problem is that they are moving at I don't want to call it glacial, although it certainly was at the outset, but they're moving at a, let's say, less than optimal pace. So the problem and the limitation on the White House's actions is actually not Congress. It is the Pentagon. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are the obstacles to moving faster? Is it just that the Pentagon is a very big 
bureaucracy and things move quite slowly there? Is it that what the administration is trying to do is actually pretty complicated in, in logistical terms? I mean, these are large pieces of equipment being moved across continents and then taken into a war zone. What, what do you see as the cause for the delays there? Depending on where you sit, uh, the answers to that question are rather different. So, for example, if you are me, uh, a, uh, a conservative critic of this administration, although I'm happy they're stepping up, you would say that the administration has been hyper-conscious about what it calls escalation or provocation. So yes, you can have this weapon, but you have to have it within these limitations. No, you can't have these jets because that would make Putin angry. There's an awful lot of thinking about Putin and escalation and not a lot of thinking about the fact that the Ukrainians are fighting a war that if they win will be an enormous boon to U.S. national security, not to speak of you know, broader NATO national security. So that's you know, my perspective. If you talk to the Pentagon and you plow your way through the acronyms and uh, and gobbledygook that they use to conceal their every thought, uh, you would get to, well, it's very difficult. It, we're transporting very heavy equipment. They may not know how to use it. We are draw, drawing down our own supplies. That actually is true. But you know, shame on us for that. So these are sort of some of the arguments that are taking place now. But, you know, Congress has had its foot, I don't want to say on the neck of the administration, because it hasn't been that aggressive. But certainly key members of Congress have been pushing very hard to get the administration to move faster, faster, please. Could you talk through the balance in the current Congress between internationalists and isolationists, as we are at the moment, and, and how that affects congressional support for military aid to Ukraine? There's been a lot of media focus on GOP, Republican objections to some of the, the aid to Ukraine. I think it's very important for people to distinguish between the loud and the influential. So, you know, when you look at 57 House members voted against the $40 billion um, Ukraine package, they had a variety of, of objections. Some of them were that there were a lot of extraneous pieces of authorization and bits of cash in that bill that had nothing to do with Ukraine. Now, there are others who are just isolationists. There are isolationist Democrats. There are isolationist Republicans. I think that on Ukraine, the White House has enforced more discipline. And so you haven't seen the usual characters in the Democratic caucus causing as much trouble. Uh, and then there is this sort of rather loud, but I would say small faction in the GOP. And the point here is, I think that uh, while it would be really nice to, to suggest that honorable members of Congress uh, not an oxymoron, uh, honorable members of Congress would do the right thing, uh, regardless of who's sitting in the White House. The reality is that there are members of Congress who are going to vote no on lots of things simply because it comes from Joe Biden. 
Daniel, given that all of this involves politics, as you explain, how different do you think things will look in January? You know, if the Biden administration wants to get more military aid to Ukraine, then we'll have a new Congress then. Let's say for the sake of argument that the economists forecast at the moment is correct and Republicans have a majority in the House and Democrats hold on to their majority in the Senate. How different would things look then? Would it be harder to get aid to Ukraine, military aid? Would it be easier? What's your take on that? I look when I think about these sort of really big ticket items uh, to leadership. Uh, So Kevin McCarthy. How did Kevin McCarthy vote on the Ukraine aid package? He voted yes. I look to Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader. How did he vote on the Ukraine aid package? Yes. Where have they both been on this question for many years? Big supporters. Mitch McConnell got asked about this, and he said, there's always been an isolationist part of the Republican Party. There always will be. They're not going to be dictating the way we go. Idris, you were just talking about isolationism in American foreign policy. And there is a school of thought that says that if Republicans win a majority in the House, which seems likely, according to our modelling, there'll be more isolationist House members in Congress, and that will make getting military aid to Ukraine harder. Danielle there, though, argued that actually the media tends to overplay the significance, the importance of the isolationist strain within the Republican Party in the House. Do you think she's right? You know, there might be something to that argument, but I think the worry that Republicans might delay future appropriations to Ukraine is a legitimate one. I know that when I've spoken to Republicans on the Hill about whether or not they think another big aid package could come through in this Congress, they say no, basically. I think what's going on here is the interaction of foreign policy and domestic sort of partisan politics. And, you know, the opposition party is always keen to deny Biden a victory. You have to remember that if we are in a divided government next time around, what happens in Congress, at least under President Obama, um, even to some extent under President Trump, is that these must-pass pieces of legislation, like further appropriations to Ukraine or the budget, become basically the only point at which the opposition can get what they want. And I think that you would see a lot of jostling to to that extent. You know, do I think that if Kevin McCarthy is speaker, he immediately shuts down and forecloses all future Ukrainian aid? I I don't think that, but. There's a real reason to think that the the sort of generosity of aid might diminish. Republicans are, one, they're going to investigate a lot of things about the Biden administration. But I think that the point that is made about lax controls on the billions of dollars that are being spent is one that they'll pursue as well. And I think for two reasons. One is that it ties into their philosophy of, of curtailing waste, fraud, and abuse. Two, it's embarrassing for the Biden administration. But three, Ukraine has had a, a huge problem with corruption before this war began. Um, on international indices, it ranked almost as highly as, in, as Russia in terms of, of corruption. So the fact that billions are, are being spent and, and examined is actually, I think, a worthwhile thing to look at and I think will also gum up the works to some extent. I think there are two buckets of support. One is for military aid, with as a question mark, and the other is for sanctions. So the Biden administration has had trouble trying to connect the high prices that consumers feel to the knock-on effects of sanctions. I mean, they, they'll raise it that this is helping to have an impact on energy prices, but 
But if you look at the polling broadly, Americans are not thrilled with his economic management. So I wonder about long-term support for sanctions, both in America and particularly in Europe, which faces the much harder reality of Russian sanctions in terms of energy prices and access to energy this winter. Conventional wisdom says that congressional elections do not hinge on American foreign policy. Is that a view you share? I mean, clearly what happens in Congress is important for Ukraine policy. But is it the case that what happens in Ukraine will affect these elections in any meaningful way? Or or do you think not? Yeah, I agree with you. I doubt that Ukraine will affect the results in congressional elections. Americans don't really pay that much attention to foreign policy, except for cases like the Iraq war, where soldiers were deployed and casualties were being reported every day. I think that at the same time, you have seen among the populist wing of the Republican Party, some people talk about Ukraine in ways that suggest that they would be more hostile to aid. J.D. Vance, who's the Republican nominee for senator in Ohio, said to voters, I got to be honest with you, I don't care what happens to Ukraine one way or the other. Tucker Carlson has been along those lines as well. And even if they're not a majority of the Republican Party, they're clearly the ascendant wing there. So it's something I think to be mindful of. I worried before going to this conference that support for Ukraine might be more fragile than it seems. I worried that on the American side, there'd be room for a lot of MAGA demagoguing that basically said, you know, our government's sending all this money, billions of dollars in assistance to Ukraine when they should be spending that money at home. And this war anyway is making our food prices and our gas prices more expensive. Actually, I think on the American side, the polling seems to show that you've got about three quarters of Americans who continue to support arming Ukraine and clear majorities who say that helping and arming Ukraine is the right thing to do, even if energy bills rise as a result. So I think that's encouraging. On the European side, you know, gas prices are really high. It's going to be difficult this winter. My feeling is, and maybe it's just the people I've talked to, you know, selective sample, that people understand that this war is Vladimir Putin's fault and not Vladimir Zelensky's fault. And they're pretty determined to do what they can to continue supporting Ukraine, even if it means that their energy bills are going to be pretty high this winter. And so, you know, overall, I'm pretty optimistic that the West can stay the course here, particularly if Ukraine continues to enjoy the kind of success on the battlefield that it has so far. All right. Before I let you go, I have a quiz for the two of you. As we mentioned earlier, the United Nations General Assembly, UNGA, is taking place in New York this week, messing up Charlotte's commute. In 1944, The Economist was bullish about the potential effectiveness of the UN as long as, quote, allied statesmanship can bring the great powers out of the war determined to work together for peace as closely and as wholeheartedly as they did for war. Question one. Who is the only U.S. president to have served as a U.N. ambassador? Hmm. Maybe H.W. He had a long career. Yeah, that seems likely. It could have been, um, it could have been Ford also, but perhaps. George H.W. Bush is the right answer. He was U.N. ambassador between 1971 and 1973 under Richard Nixon. So congratulations, Idris. Question two. After his stint at the U.N., George H.W. Bush took up the post of ambassador to which country? That's a good one. I have no idea. I'm going to say either France or Japan, but I don't actually know. The UK is a nice post, but... Um, it's a great garden, the US embassy. But he, he was probably a serious diplomat, so he must have gone somewhere hard. Um, East Germany. In fact, it was China. 
Technically, his title was chief of the U.S. liaison office because the U.S. didn't have diplomatic relations with China at the time. But he was America's ambassador to China. Oh, cool. I did not know that. I know he was CIA director. But he was. He was. Yeah. He did it all, really. Yeah, he did. George H.W., I feel like there needs to be a proper biography. I'm sure there have been many biographies written, but he did have a pretty interesting life from Midland, Texas, to being liaison for China to president. His trajectory has took him all over. Yeah, he sure did. And given how mean voters were to him, um, I think he's one of those presidents, a bit like Carter, that people look back on as, as actually being much, much better and much, much more successful um, than you would think if you looked at his record in elections. OK, Charlotte Idris, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person next week. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz with research by Elizabeth Peet. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email if you want to do that. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.